You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. 12.03 here on 3RRR-FM. A very, very good afternoon to Yes, we've uh, we've declared that the sun is now over the yard arm, and, uh, and that makes us kind of happy because uh, of the fact that uh, today's show is brought to you by the letter P. Uh, Matt Steadman. Cameron Smith. Lovely to see you, buddy. And likewise, letter, the letter P, you say. I'm intrigued. Well, that was, uh, that was my, uh, my method there, and I'm yes. glad that it's worked. It hooked uh, me in. Creator, what is this letter P you speak yes. of? Um, today, I'm actually a little bit agog and, mm. uh, and a little bit uh, super excited because it's not often that you can say that we've just got a superstar of uh, the culinary world just sort of hanging out in the green room. This is true. Going, will I make a coffee or won't I? Yes. Um, that dilemma mm. is uh, is on the shoulders. Very broad shoulders they are too because mm. this man is a, is a surfer in his spare time. Diego Manuz from uh, Astrid y Gaston, and I'm probably murdering that. And hopefully the radio isn't too loud in the green room. <laughs> um, we'll just have to keep that down, I think. Um, Diego is um, the greatest chef um, so far as accolades uh, from from those who know, yes, uh, in Peru, he uh, he is uh, an expat of Peru. We could sort of say that he is uh, well. We said before he's a surfer, but he's also fairly nomadic, or he was mm. um, getting influences from all over the world, including Australia. Yes. One of his secret vices is Vegemite, apparently. We're mm-hmm. going to talk to him a little bit about that. But uh, the great news is that uh, he's going to be doing some events while he's here. But while he is here, I think it's a good idea to maybe pick his brain regarding this South American cuisine. Let's face it, mm. not a lot of Australians know that much about I would agree. I know very little about Peruvian cuisine. We've had a couple of restaurants that have uh, come into town. There's mm. uh, a Picante. Day we can uh, uh, speak about um, a few other places uh, that are around the, with Peruvian cuisine. It's just sort of getting on our radar. Mm. And um, it is a fascinating, fascinating um, crossover of indigenous culture, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, overlaid with uh, the conquistador overlay, we could sort of say. And, uh, well, yeah, I want to find a little bit more about that. So Diego is going to have a chat to us and talk about uh, where he's going to be here in, in Melbourne. And then just to broaden things out, because mm. uh, the spirit of Peru is a stuff called pisco, mm. and uh, eagle-eyed or eagle-eared listeners to the show might remember an April April Fool's Day thing <laughs> that we did. A few years ago now. A few years ago where we said that uh, Flinders Street Railway Station was going to be uh, taken over, I think, by George Columbaris and Matt Preston, um, and they were going to have the uh, a huge ceviche bar and the biggest collection of Pisco's in Australia. You know what? It was a great April Fool's Day joke, but that would, it would have been a better world had that actually happened. Yeah. Actually, it would have. <laughs> now that I think about it, and having tried a bit of ceviche around the place, um, yeah. I, th- I think poor George got a couple of phone calls from reporters after that story. Yeah, he as did. I he, he actually rang me on Monday going, mate, what is going on? What is going on? Cam? Cam? He was, he was on the phone about that. So anyway, Peru, mm. what's it all about? Um, we're going to find out a little bit about that. Um, we're going to look into um, Pisco because Josie Hilo Healy is here from mm. uh, the Pisco people. You like that? I like that little name, yes, the Pisco Uh, people. The Pisco people. Rolls off the tongue very nicely. Um, Are here indeed, and and maybe we might be able to throw a bouquet for a beer that that received a great accolade, didn't it? It did. So, yeah, we we might get that on soon. But first of all... Yes. Sad news, nutrition. It's just more and more confusing things that happen... I don't know. Since we've been doing the show, man, yes. fats were good, yeah. fats were bad. Carbs were bad. Carbs were good. Carbs are now good again. Yeah, carbs were good. Um, what else was sort of uh, going up and down? Polyunsaturated fats were yes. good. Then monounsaturated fats were good. Um, oh, look, it's just salt was good. It's salt like the, was bad. It's like the food pyramid flips itself. 
on its head every 10 years or something, according to the to the fads and trends. So those of you that are now sort of cooking with vegetable oils, thinking, look, that's going to be healthier. With, than a, with a smug feeling in the kitchen. Smug feeling, like, you know, I don't cook anything in lard because I would just be, that would just be terrible. Because my body is a temple. Okay, well, here, you ready? Here we go. <laughs> here we go. All right. Cooking with vegetable oils releases toxic chemicals linked to cancer. That's right, folks. Cooking with vegetable oils um, can release the toxic chemicals linked to cancer and other diseases, according to leading scientists who are now recommending food be fried in... Are you ready for this? <laughs> are you ready, folks? Um, they're saying that food should be cooked in olive oil, coconut oil, butter... Or even lard. Lard, the healthy option. Hang on to your hats, <laughs> folks. Uh, the results of a series of experiments threatened to turn on its head mm. official advice that oils rich in polyunsaturated fats, such as corn oil, sunflower oil, are better off for the health than standard satura- than saturated fats in animal products. China's found that um, heating up vegetables, um, and the problem seems to be here, that if you heat these vegetables, you get high concentrations of things called aldehydes. Mm. Aldehydes are bad. (laughs) Why are aldehydes bad? Well, ow, you naughty aldehyde, because you've been linked to illnesses including cancer, heart disease, and dementia. Yes. Yeah. So is I this, love this look. Matt's giving you this, this uh, sort of really? vacant look. Is this another non-story along the lines of the WHO processed meats report we mentioned a couple of weeks ago? Where it's got a lot of headlines, you know, bacon's going to kill you, but has anything really changed? Well, okay. Well, here we've got this guy's name, Martin Grootveld. He sounds like he might be Dutch. Hi, Martin, if you're listening. Marty, Marty, the Grutenator, um, a professor of bioanalytical chemistry and uh, chemical pathology. Mm-hmm. Gee, that'd be a good thing to have on your card. You'd I'm need, a chemical you'd, pathologist. You'd need a wide card. You would. Um, said that his research showed the typical meal of fish and chips, fried in vegetable, contained as much as 100 to 200 times more toxic aldehydes than the safe daily limit set by the WHO. That Matt's just given me the other look, yeah, where the, he pushes his lip out and go. Oh. The eyebrows went up. Yeah, he went, oh, oh, maybe there is something in oh, this. Oh, bloody hell! Okay, so in contrast, heating up butter, olive oil, and lard in tests produced much lower levels of aldehydes. Coconut oil produced the lowest levels of the harmful chemicals. Unfortunately, they're the ones with the most saturated fats. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because vegetables are rich in. Um, Omega-6 acids, Mm. they are contributing to a reduction in critical omega-3 fatty acids in the brain by replacing them. Are we overthinking this slightly? Do we not just eat varied and well and fresh ingredients and it's going to take care of itself perhaps? I don't know. Well, I don't know, Matt, because what we're thinking of doing is Matt and I were talking about going up to the roof and turning on the Rosemary Stanton signal. Yes. (laughs) Right. Sort of we, like the bat signal. Yeah. Gotham City needs your help, Rosemary. Rosemary. So, I don't know. We might get Rosemary on the line. And that's. I guess that's what Rosemary might say, that maybe you shouldn't have deep-fried food all the time. I, I, I can I, see her yes, saying that. I, that sounds like something she would say, and I would um, agree with. And maybe every now and then to have maybe some fried chicken cooked in lard because it just tastes amazing. Yes. Huh? <laughs> but that's a sometimes food, people. Yeah, that is a sometimes food. Anyway, so um, food mm. for thought. Mm. Food for thought while mm. you look at the deep fryer full of sunflower oil. Yes. Maybe you're not my friend after all. Maybe that deep fryer in the home isn't your friend after all either. If you do have a deep fryer at home, maybe mm. you should have a good long hard look at yourself. <laughs> really? Just go into the go into the well, bathroom now. Go to the mirror. Yeah, go, mm, do I really need that? I've occasionally eyed off the deep fryer in the in the section at the at the department store there. I go, ooh, deep fryer. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> this 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 is the path to nothing good, I'm sure. Yeah, well actually <laughs> someone offered me one the other day. Oh really? And I just went, Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> No, that'd be really nice, but no, maybe not. And then I said, how many how many does it hold? And I think it was an eight-litre deep fryer. Oh, God. So, no. Yes. Just walk away. <laughs> many regretful meals later. Walk away. Um, and on a lighter note uh, from France, uh-huh. warm cheese, anyone? Hello. Yeah. My name's Nigel. Want to buy some warm cheese? Uh, there is a story. The mysterious uh, French thieves... Well, there's a mystery. French yes. thieves stole $43,000 worth of um, of cheese. 
Uh, in perhaps the most delicious heist in recent memory, mm. Eater reports that a mysterious band of French robbers... I wonder if they had masks and you yes. know, stripy shirts yes. on and uh, baguettes under their arms. Anyway, made off with more than 8,818 uh, 8, pounds. God, that's fairly specific. <laughs> they said more than. Yeah. More than that. So maybe, I don't know, 8,819 pounds yeah. of Comte cheese last week. The dastardly dairy theft occurred in the country's couleur <laughs> Sorry, I, I make that face when I speak French. Um... Uh, which is in Dubes. Uh, anyway, it's in eastern France. According to the uh, to the reports, French police were called after the bandits weaseled their way through the store's barbed wire fence. <laughs> Good use of the word weasel there. And used a crowbar to break into the establishment. They swiped. <laughs> so they're weaseling and swiping yeah. about 100 wheels of Comte. 100. This is sort of Those reminds me... Those guys are going to get sick of Comte. I don't know. It sort of reminds me of... Um, uh, anyway, it reminds me of something we won't go to. Uh, which officials believe they're likely to sell on the black market. Mm. Yes, black market exists. Cheese is the most stolen food product in the world. Really? Huh. Apparently. Well, maybe there's a, black and white here. Maybe there's a Silk Road for cheese. <laughs> going to go and yes. Google it straight away. The dark net for <laughs> yes. cheese. Um, it goes without saying that Comte cheese is delicious. Tick. Yeah, and melts well. But it's also valuable. The hard-aged cheese is a luxury product. Um, yeah, in fact. But here's, here's some interesting things. In fact, food theft can be quite a profitable enterprise. In 2012, six million pounds of maple syrup. Six million? Yeah. Syrup's good because it doesn't go off. So you've got a lot of time hey, to, get rid of uh, to get rid of it. Cheese. Yeah, yeah, you've got to have all good refrigeration. Um, they were stolen from a warehouse. Uh, the sticky goods were apparently worth $18 million. Um, the following year, thieves in Germany pilfered $20,000 worth of Nutella from a trailer. Um, uh, in Birmingham, garlic, monster cheese and Kellogg's breakfast cereals have also been snatched in large and lucrative quantities. Mm. Suffice to say, crime is sometimes more colourful than your ordinary bank robber. And way more calorific, especially yes. if you're cooking it in saturated <laughs> fat. Um, I don't know. Okay, so what we might do is uh, we were hoping to uh, cast a bouquet. Should we give her a ring now? Let's give should it a go. Just, should we give it a try? So let's just do this. We're uh, speaking, of course, of um, Jane Lewis from uh, Two Birds Brewing. Yes, because uh, they've had some uh, recent success. Uh, not so much with stealing cheese or anything like that, but uh, being regarded as being, well, making some of the best beer in the UK, certainly at this festival. This is true. Yeah. So we thought we'd give Jane a ring. That was the idea. We'd set it up to do that. Yes. And uh, we await for her to uh, move to the phone. And, I, I mean, I love it when we plan these things. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, you know? Um <laughs> You ring someone up, yeah. you organise to have a Hi, chat. You've reached Jane from Two Birds Brewing. Yeah. Right. No, well, I thought maybe we could leave a message. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Jane, hello there. It's uh, it's Cam Smith and Maddie Stedman. Say hi, Mark. Greetings, Jane. How yeah, are you? Yeah, good on you. Well, uh, we we just wanted to ring you um, and talk on air uh, <laughs> to say congratulations for having the best beer at the Weatherspoon Festival in the UK. Congratulations for winning with your Sunset Ale. The best beer on the day. Yes. Um, some say this could be the best beer in the UK, but Jane, because the way that you said that, yes. your, your integrity and the way that you did that, and you said, no, it's just the best beer on the day. So uh, even though Two Birds is only four years old, um, you guys are making a great mark on the world. You make great beer, and of the 500,000 litres of beer that you make... That's a lot of beer each We year. salute you. We do. Eat it salutes you. We do. We would have liked to talk to you. But um, anyway, this is a very long voicemail we're leaving. Yeah, we should probably yeah. go now. Twelve sixteen here on Triple R. So anyway, I guess the, the great news is that uh, from the inner city of Melbourne mm. or Spotswood, now we should say, with their uh, with their new brewery, they've been able to take their beer to the world mm. and win accolades. And you know the good thing about it, mm. their beer tastes really good. It is so I remember beer. when they came on air, we thought they were great. Um, it is... Uh, We're going to play a quick track, I think, and then we'll come back with... Uh, Diego. Indeed. Talking about uh, the cuisine of Peru. His... Oh, I'm going to use that word. The journey word. Anyway, he's, uh, he's done a lot in the time that he has been on this earth, and we salute him, and we're going to talk to him. 
Oh, it's nice to have a noisy ritual. And, uh, you know, it's not often that um, we here in the studio, Matt and I, get mm. a little bit overwhelmed because we have in our presence such a superstar of uh, of cuisine, one of the, the truly great chefs of the world. And, um, and the great thing is that uh, very patiently he taught me how to pronounce his name. Uh, Diego Mun- Munoz. 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 Yep. Gosh, uh, there I was. I was at the gate, and it was like it was like being at a hurdle race, and the horse just faltered, and I went over the top. Can I first of all say welcome to the studios here? It is just that's lovely to meet you. It right. really, really is. When did you get here? How, how, how long have you been in Australia for? Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here as well. And we arrived on Wednesday night. Uh, we left actually Lima Sunday night, so it took us a while to get here like, because we had to stop over in Santiago and we stayed there for 24 hours because the plane couldn't make it from Sydney to there. So it was good because we actually can catch up with some friends in Santiago. It was good. Oh, okay. So there was just like, hey, well, yeah. you know, we're going to be a little bit late. Now, what I might do is get you to just angle up that microphone just a little bit more. So that's it. So yeah. we're, in, we're, we're in the sweet spot. If we look at describing you, one sort of thing about you, the thing that seems to ground you, and I can see from your very, very broad shoulders, is that you're a surfer. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, that was one of my passions as well. And, uh, yeah, besides cooking, I, I, I love to, to surf as well. Uh, and surfing's a very grounding thing, isn't it? That You know, when, when everything else is all chaotic and stuff like that, it's a great way to, first of all, Fill your lungs with uh, with good air, but also a great way to clear the mind. I would say. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Just just uh, out there uh, by yourself. Don't don't think too much about no. anything else than than uh, check out the waves. You know, so it's good. Yeah, and and a great way to sort of commune with nature and have a sort of an understanding of it, isn't it? It's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. So so this sort of this is a nice way to balance such a crazy workload and a life of of a chef. Because it is, it's it's chaos, isn't it? A lot of the time, which which you try to control, of course. Yeah, yeah. It depends. It depends on how how long you take it, you know. Because, of course, professional cooking is is really demanding. It's uh, it's, it's it's a hard lifestyle, uh, of course. Yeah. But um, now I'm realizing I need to balance it more, you know, and 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 take it easier. Uh, still doing the same quality. Uh, work but uh you know better balance uh so i'm starting to do a lot of meditation and yoga at the moment so that's keeping me going you know keeps the keeps the balance going now we as australians um it's 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 funny the the journey that we've had in this country has been all about the layers of migration that have come to this country and how we've um, by understanding the food and absorbing the food and eating the food that we start to understand the cultures. And I would say for a lot of us here that the South American people and the cuisines is maybe one of the last sort of puzzles for us to to start to, to understand, yeah? Yeah, well, we have um, a lot of layers, as you said. We have a really strong base culture as a... Uh, all Peruvian culture has been doing for the last pretty much 7,000 years. Uh, growing produces, taking care of the different climates that we have in our countries, and we get the immigration from different cultures that actually uh, add to that, you know. So gastronomy is, is, is really open, so it can actually take different reference for something else and and, and melt them. That's that's a beautiful thing about uh, Peruvian gastronomy. I think it doesn't... Uh, it's a blend of different flavors, cultures, as the country is, you know. We have so many different cultures running around, uh, so much richness on our soils as well, and different climates. Uh, we got the Amazon, we got the beautiful uh, Andes, uh, the desert running all over the, the Pacific Ocean. So everything uh, melts there and, and actually produces a beautiful thing that we actually, personally, I'm, I'm starting to discover and I get... Uh, Surprise uh, every time with the new things, you know, because it's, it's so thick uh, culture going on there. There is so many things to go and discover, so it's beautiful. If you uh, if you have just uh, joined us, uh, it's uh, Diego Mun. 
I can't do it. <laughs> well, my, I have this mental blank and I'm starting to blush. My God. Munoz. 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 Yeah. I'm just doing it. I'm Munoz. Um, uh, Diego, of course, um, is the award-winning chef of uh, Astrid y Gaston. Y Gaston, yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> um, and uh, this has been given great accolades by the, well, this, this sort of like if we look to the New Testament of awards, the San Pell Awards, are you now currently 14th? Yeah. Well, fourteen now. I know. Fourteenth, yeah. and um, and there are two restaurants that we we were looking at here in Lima. Uh, Astrid Gaston, you mean? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, in the house that I run is uh, it's really a big house, uh, three hundred year old house. Uh, it's a beautiful looking place. It's beautiful. It's, it's like beautiful. a uh, incredible Spanish hacienda. It used to be an old hacienda actually, yeah. and uh, and the city grew and it shrinks and got. Trap in inside the city, so we, we still we still wanted to give it like an hacienda image and keep it like that. And inside there, I have five kitchens, uh, uh, two restaurants, and then we have function room with its own kitchen, big production kitchen, and then we have a, a test kitchen as well that is non-commercial. We use just for developing. Wow! So so this is this is your headquarters, and this is where you mold the influences of the of the cuisine around you. But before. Um, you set yourself up there. You were a bit nomadic. You you left. Um, you spent some time here yeah. uh, in in Australia. Um, I know at Bilson's where you certainly made a, a huge impact. Nominated for Restaurant of the Year in 2011. Yep. Nominated for Chef of the Year. I'm seeing a few things at places that, that uh, said that you were at Dunkeld as well. Yep. Oh, you worked at Dunkeld? I was with Dan, yeah, at the Royal Hotel just before Bilson. So I came back to Australia in 2010. I was a little bit short period in Lima. And I was, wanted, I was always in touch with uh, Dan Hunter and always... Uh, uh, a couple kindred spirits, perhaps? Yeah, yeah. yeah? And, and then I finally... Joined the, the, his team in 2010 for four months. Then uh, Tony asked me to come back to Bilsons. This is Tony Bilson, Tony who Bilsons, Bilsons sorry, is yeah. named after. Yeah. yeah uh, so I joined uh, Bilsons in January 2011. And then we had a really, really good review that year, and it was all going amazing. Yeah. Was this when you discovered Vegemite? Uh, no, I actually knew it from before, yeah. Yeah, I love Vegemite, actually. Yeah, you love Vegemite. <laughs> this is, it's kind of interesting because I've inflicted it on some Canadians and some Americans. I don't, there might be a Canadian listening that remembers as a kid me giving him Vegemite and he thought it was terrible, but do you like Vegemite? And yeah. you're actually in the Matt Steadman mold of, of Vegemite users. I, I slather it on. I go quite thick. So you, traditionally Australians will just, just scrape a little bit on them. But uh, I, no, used, I used to eat a lot actually in the kitchen just before uh, we start cooking, and I actually start to wear my my gums. You were saying you had red gums from <laughs> Vegemite. <laughs> I, was, I was eating too much, so well, it's good. Have, yeah. have, uh, okay, I'm just kind of curious, and we'll we'll get off the Vegemite thing. But um, uh, because you say, look, it is obviously this great kick of umami, isn't it? It's like, it is oh, punch in the face umami. Have you ever used it in the restaurant to sort of maybe kick, yeah. al- kick along some dishes to give it a little bit of added balance? It does. It does a lot of uh, 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 gives a lot of flavor to to if you can use it in stocks and stuff. It's, it's great because you got all the umami there concentrated. Just just spread it out. So, who ever thought that this uh, yeast extract that was first created in the twenties in Australia by an American multinational would inform the cuisine of Peru? <laughs> but that's the thing because. Peru, oh my God, it's, uh, what an incredible place. I mean, if we talk chronologically about the influence that are there, first of all, well, what do we look at? We look at the, inc- the potato. Uh, yeah. That would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, they say everything started in the Titicaca Lake, which is uh, sh- shared by Bolivia and Peru, up in the Altiplano, you know. So, up in the hills. Yeah, so they say every, everything started there and uh, started to spread up. Uh, so we started, yeah, with the grains, the quinoa, potatoes. Uh, we're talking about uh, 3,000 before Christ. So it's, uh, and, and, and maybe that's the thing that maybe we don't think about here in Australia because even though the, the breadth of the type of potatoes that are available here have become mm. a little bit significant, the great thing about Peru is about the altitude and the diversity that that brings, that you might have a potato that will grow 
100 feet below a certain yeah. – and there's thousands and thousands of varieties, isn't there? Yeah, I had the chance. After I, I came back to, to Peru, after Australia, actually the first thing I did, I went up to see the farmers in Ayacucho, uh, and they start to grow potatoes over 3,000 meters above sea level, so it's pretty high, uh, and I discovered so many potatoes uh, – and they used to keep it just for their uh, own consumption, you know, since, since, since God, because they actually didn't lose them with the, all the different uh, immigrations. Because uh, this is the complete opposite to monocultures that we look at, isn't it? It is such a diverse, yeah. um, uh, a diversity of, um, of characteristics and, and, and uh, botanical diversity, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, talking about potatoes, uh, over 3,000 probably. Uh, uh, Quinoa, 350 different varieties. Up there really? Well. I didn't yeah. know that. Because yeah, yeah. here in Australia, we just have three types. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. Then I met this farmer in, 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 in Puno, which is, is amazing. Everything that he taught me about quinoa, you know, and, and I actually took him to Madrid Fusion. It was one of the best food festivals or the biggest food festival in, in the world in Madrid. So they invited me, and then I took this quinoa farmer. He brought 25 different varieties of quinoa, and everyone was like, wow, what are you doing here? Wow. That was amazing, yeah. Magic. So um, if we, we look at the, the – the, there's so many influences that happen with Peru, with, uh, with the conquistadors. Um, that come through, so that, you know that's that's a big one. But people might not know that there's an incredible influence that that happened from um, across the sea, from from the Far East coming across. So we we think about the Japanese and the Chinese have been a huge influence too, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, uh, yeah. So after the Spanish came the the Africans uh, to work for them, and then. Japanese and Chinese. And the Africans also. as well. My yeah, God. yeah, yeah. And we have a lot of influence, especially on the coast, on the gastronomy of African influence and, and, and things that they... That they brought. They brought and they added to our gastronomy, which is great, yeah. Wow. Um, that's incredible. So um, so far as um, the Japanese and the Chinese Chinese influence, um, how, do, how do we see that in the country? Sorry? Uh, the, the Chinese and the Japanese, what did they bring for, to Peru? Well... Oh, first of all, when did they come? That was 19th century as laborers, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. That, that was, they came because of that. And, uh, yeah, especially the, the Japanese, they, they... So Spanish came over, they brought limes and onions. That, that, that's when we started with our national dish, ceviche, you know. And then when uh, we... And we used to cook it overnight just to let marinate it in, in lime. When the Japanese came over, they taught us to actually cook it as fresh as possible so we just mix it all up uh slice it properly and then uh it is straight away so it's nice and fresh uh, and, they, and they would have brought stuff like yuzu over too yeah, wouldn't they yeah, yeah. Well, we don't we didn't it didn't it didn't catch yuzu in, in it's a shame we didn't catch yuzu in in, in peru there's something that we actually cannot grow yet uh, we have different really yeah 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 oh i thought maybe because of the the sort of the climate's going to be sort of similar and wasabi neither we try as well and we cannot get it there haven't, haven't got that organized yet no 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 we oh. try. we're still trying though yeah okay um and so the the influences that that you see that that you're looking at what um what sort of influences um have have you been looking at in in peru yourself there's another big influence, uh, an Italian influence from last century as well that is sticking the country as well. And See, this was one I didn't know. And that's it's why like we have Pisco, actually. It's like everybody's coming to, to Peru. Yeah, okay, that's why Pisco is there. That's why we have Pisco, because we used to have, a, when the Italians came, we used to have a lot of wineries uh, south of Lima, especially. So what do we uh, call those, uh, the bodegas? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, they start to produce this uh, uh, ferment, fermented wine, and that's when we get Pisco. It's just great uh unfortunately we, did, we didn't keep producing good wine so that's why we, we actually our wine industry is not that that got that big it's, it's picking up now but, but the uh, distilling industry is huge the distilling industry is really big because yeah. josie who's um who's waiting with a with a bottle of pisco in hand who's going to come in and and um, give this and, and talk to us she was saying that in um in peru there's over 700 different types of pisco Pretty much, producers different. Yeah, because we have different, like eleven different grapes to make pisco, and then we can make a pure pisco, and we can make a mosto verde, which is we cut the fermentation to get more aromas out of it. Uh, 
But it, usually you need to get uh, 11 kilos of grape to get uh, one liter of pisco, you know, so it's pretty, pretty, pretty strong drink, yeah. I'm looking forward to trying yeah, it yeah. and maybe maybe having a taste, uh, a taste of it. So the Peruvians have been um, one of the great exports, it, it seems, that, or the, peop- the thing that catches people's uh, attention is ceviche. And we spoke a little bit about uh, ceviche and the... Uh, and the history of it, but there's um, there's a type of uh, ceviche which is typically um, Peruvian. Uh, uh, and I'm, excuse me when I say this: is it tiradito? Tiradito. That's that's yeah. actually one of the biggest uh, Japanese influences on, yeah. on ceviche. You know, just uh, sashimi sliced fish. Just just put a little bit of uh, lime juice and salt on it. No onions on this one. Chili, of course, and and that's it. What sort of chili are we talking? It's called aji. Aji. Aji means, aji means uh, chili. So, oh, okay. And then, again, on chili we have another 200 different varieties or more yeah. that are growing there, you know, so it's crazy, yeah. And, and, the, and it's a literal translation, Matt. You probably won't, won't, won't write this down sure. for the uh, – uh, but uh, tira actually means to throw, doesn't it? So it's like getting the sashimi and throwing it in a bowl yeah, with the – We spread it out on the plate. No, actually we spread it out on the plate and then we dress it in there in this mega fresh – Really nice. The limes are really important as well. The, the acidity of the limes that we have is, is is really well balanced. You know, it's not mega acid or, or too sweet. It's actually balanced and bring brings out the the the, the flavor and, and cures a little bit the protein of, of the so fish. It, are you saying there's like a little bit of sweetness to the lime? It, or? Yeah. Well, it's not it's not sweet, but it, it has it's not mega acid neither. So okay. So we we have lemons over here. I think it's called a Myers lemon. Yeah. Which is also known as the lemonade yeah, lemon, yeah. which is sort of maybe a little bit closer to orange. Yeah. And a, a little bit more gentle than a Lisbon. But I, I use I use I use limes here in Australia as well to make ceviche work well. So. How do we make ceviche? Can we make? Can anybody just make ceviche? So if you're in a boat, actually, you 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 can okay, make ceviche. Just catch fresh fish and uh, slice it up. And all right, first and of all, need, get a boat. You need <laughs> okay, got that. Just a second. Good <laughs> menu. Get boat. Yes. And then uh, go, well, to, you, go to go to ocean. You need you need uh, five ingredients. Yes, fresh fish, salt, lime juice, onions, and chili. That's it to start with. You know, and and from there you can add cilantro. Uh, so different things, and then, and then out of ceviche as well comes another different uh, elaboration, basic elaboration that grows all over as well. It's called leche de tigre, tiger's milk. Yes, which is actually the the, the juice that drops off uh, the the curing the, pro- the curing process of the lime with the protein of the fish. Actually, gets you a cloudy whitish um, uh, liquid. Yes, and uh, that we call leche de tigre. So we can actually make uh, leche, leche de tigre. tigre. Yeah. I can even say that without, <laughs> without, without murdering it. That's different from the dulce de leche, yeah. which we see on just about every Peruvian dessert. Huh? That's different. But uh, if we're going to make ceviche at home, uh, what sort of fish should we be thinking about using? I mean, do we use – what sort of fish should we use? Uh, you can use any white fish. You, white you can, fish. Yeah, you can do it with blue fish as well. Uh, you can but it has to be fresh. It has to be Obviously. fresh. That's, that's the that's – the, Main condition, you know, fresh fish. Because for a lot of uh, places in ceviche, uh, traditionally you only had uh, ceviche in 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 the afternoon. I, I was hearing that you have to get actually, it out. It's actually, very fresh. Actually, in Lima, cevicherias, which are the ceviche restaurants that are all over the city, they don't they don't open at night. Ah, so it's true. Yeah, yeah. So we only have it for lunch, but. Uh, but the restaurant we still serve it all day long and uh, it's popular at night as well, you know. Like, yeah, we'll serve you ceviche. Yeah, yeah, why not? If we, we, if we eat sushi at night, why not ceviche, you know? And um, so, so ceviche, how long do you marinate ceviche for? Is it something that's just very, very briefly or do we let it no, cure? No, it, no. So first first you just you season it with salt, the, the, the fresh fish, then add the lime juice, Onions and chili, and then the the just give it a couple of tears. It has to be really cold. You don't want to eat a warm ceviche. It has to no. be really really cold. Yes, and uh, that's it. Two three minutes is ready. Go for it. So it's one of those things that's really really simple, but you've got to follow those those things to yeah. to make it right. Yeah, it's very simple, but it's got to fit within the parameter. The fish has got to be white fleshed. Yeah, it's got to be really 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 fresh. And it's one of those things that the less you do to it, the better it is, really, by the sounds of it. It is. It yeah? is. Just let the fish speak by itself, you know. 
It's 12.41 here on um, 3 triple R. Um, I'm here that you're going to be doing some events while you're here. We should probably mention to the people what you're doing here. Yeah, I am, we're doing a couple of nights at uh, Lady Carolina in uh, next Wednesday and Sunday night. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Uh, not featuring Astrid de Gaston, but featuring La Barra, which is the other restaurant from the house that is more like a gastro bar. So we do uh, dishes to share and uh, really common dishes from a canteen style of uh, Peruvian, mm. uh, but bring out to our, our way of cooking. So, yeah, we're doing that on Wednesday and Sunday night. So if people want to, do we need to book for that? Yeah. I think you would. So who do you yeah. who do you ring up? Uh, straight down on uh, Little Carolina Lady. website. Yeah. So Lady Carolina, um, which of course is a fabulous restaurant. Huh? It is. A it bit is of good. fun. It's good. I actually met uh, uh, Paul and Alvi in Lima in January, so they were actually. Oh, they getting, came over. They came over. That's what. That's where we connected and on their Peru discovery tour. Yeah, they were getting. I wish I was in on that. So I took them to the markets and, and took them to different restaurants, and uh, yeah, they love it. Oh. The, the, the guys from View du Monde as well, they came a uh, month and a half ago to, to Lima. So I, really? I was in charge as well to show them around. And what a great job. What a great gig. I'd love. And we're happy. You know, we're happy with that we have such a great uh, uh, attention on our gastronomy nowadays. So we have to, to yeah. Well, it's just such a fascinating cuisine because underpinned by a thousand-year-old culture, which was – Somewhat displaced. I'm saying somewhat because there's a lot of resistance from away from the coast, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, about that. And then these layers, and it's a little bit like Australia in a way, in a, in a strange sort of a way, isn't it? Um, that you get these layers of migration that have influenced the Japanese, the Chinese, the Africans, the Italians, the Spanish. My God, it's, yeah. it's an incredible melting pot. That is blessed with really, really great ingredients. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's 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 one thing. You know, multiculturality is uh, based in the Peruvian gastronomy, and the other one is, yeah, of course, our biodiversity. You know, we have like thirty-two different microclimates in the whole country to get different produce. So we are really blessed. And a fabulous ocean current that brings you the two most currents. beautiful fish. Yeah, yeah, we got two currents. We got El Niño coming from the north. Yes. Uh, and then we have uh, Humboldt coming from the south. Yes. Yeah. And uh, what a happy yeah, confluence it is. Now, people can also um, see your food at the Melbourne Night Noodle Market that yeah. is still taking place there. Ooh, You're uh, doing a dish there, are you not? Yeah, we're doing a uh, quinoa uh, stir fry with some prawns and asparagus. Uh, what sort of quinoa are you using? Uh, we're using the out of the hundreds of that we now are no, available. No, we're using actually the organic tassi, tassi quinoa, which is really, really good. I love it. And uh, and then we we still find uh, this dish influenced by the Chinese that we call it chifa, chifa uh, yeah. yeah. So it's a pretty quick sweet stir fry, you know, in a in a wok uh, with a little bit of chili and sweetness to it. It's nice. Come and try it at the Nine Markets. Sounds good. Now, um, do you feel like a little glass of pisco? I'd love to. Yeah. We should probably hear the story about this because there's a lot of you out there that don't know that much about it. I was probably one of those too, um, quite recently. But thanks to Josie. I've seen the light here on uh, 3RRR 1245. Diego, thank you so much for your time. It's very, very lovely to meet you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And if you, before I forget, I want to thank as well, as well um, Chef Hat for helping out with the China for the events. Oh, Chef's Hat. Yeah. Good on you, Chef's Hat. The good stuff. Thank you. Thanks All a lot, right. me. Josie, a very, very good afternoon to you. Hello. Anyway, let's get <laughs> you set up here. Maybe we'll give you, maybe just while you get yourself set up in the... Uh, in our little studio, um, let's paint a little picture. Um, pisco, um, an incredible, incredible drink. Um, with uh, not with colour. I mean, what we're looking at is uh, is an unaged. Do you want to get your get your stuff out? Let's get I you. I do. You'll hear the dulcet tones of clinking bottles. I like dulcet one tones of, of clinking bottles. One of my favourite sounds. This uh, this makes us uh, happy, and I think Gia oh, Diego, you've given a glint in the eye of Diego. Um, first of all, wow, this is like a medicine show. I know. These are, <laughs> these, are these are very cute bottles. Um, Tell us a little bit about the story of Pisco and how on earth did you get involved in it? 
Right, Pisco. Well, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to live in South America. Yes, um, nice so, work, Diego. Uh, thank you. And uh, while I was there, like most people who are tourists to South America, I had heard lots about Pisco Sour. So mm-hmm. I have to have me one of those. Yes. And um, over time, I became really interested in the whole story of Pisco, how it's made... Um, the controversy between Chile and Peru about who owns the rights to... <laughs> Chileans, what do they know about Pisco? I well, mean, they do Piscola. They do do Piscola, and you don't do that with any of the Pisco people, Piscos. Yeah. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, Piscola's um, a pleasant drink when you're a young person and you don't have a lot of money And you don't want to think about taste products. or, uh, or anything you... underpinning the quality of a product. Or remember so let's not even worry about the Chileans. Let's talk about Peru. The interesting thing is that again what we are seeing is the drink uh, born by uh, by the conquistadors uh, the the yeah. outside influence that came in and it's part of what we call the Columbus exchange I suppose yeah so we, the uh, conquistadors needed wine for the holy church yeah they needed to pay and, you know uh, other people wanted wine for the non they wanted payment activities. for all that <laughs> chocolate and the chilies and the capsicums and stuff that they gave us exactly so the conquistadors actually bought the grapes into um, Peru in about 1553 mm. um, they actually just bought one grape stock variety in and over time that adjusted to what was the that conditions. one what was the first one they brought in Look, the first one is actually um, Negra Criola, yes. which is common black, yep. and then everything else is a derivative of that. So Quebranta, which is the most common, so it's sort of the backbone grape variety of um, a lot of Piscos in Peru, actually means broken. And really? That is um, – it's, it's a variant of the Negra Criola. And, and it's interesting in the whole way that the – sorry to cut across you, but it's the, the fact that Peru didn't go for – the industry didn't really go for this table wine type of industry that much, but really concentrated, put all their eggs in the one basket of distillation. Well, initially they did do a lot of wine. So the Jesuits took care of the wine. Um, so they controlled the winemaking industry. And yes, then the in the indoctrination f- of small children up to the <laughs> age of seven too. I think that went as well, didn't it? Probably. Yes. But the locals were um, given the leftover grapes that the Jesuits didn't want for their winemaking. And they actually started to make their own, yeah. um, what it was called, agua diente in those days, which is... Fire water. Or holy so water, maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's more the Italians call it holy water, yeah. Yeah, and so they started to make um, their, their own aguardiente. Yes. And over time, um, it became very famous. And, and so they continued to produce wines, but over time, of about a hundred years, the production of Pisco actually dwarfed the production of wine. So Pisco was also famous across Europe and um, in the US because it was coming out of the port of Pisco, which is in uh, the south of Lima in gotcha. a town called Pisco. Yes. yes. Uh, and that's actually where it gets its name from. So, it so there has been a certain amount of success with exports in the past. Absolutely. Really. Peru produce about 1.5 million litres of Pisco a year mm-hmm. um, compared to Chile, who do about 30 million litres, yet Peru export a lot more of their their um, Pisco. Yes. And, in fact, one of the highest consumers of their imported Pisco is actually Chile. They take 33% of all the imported... Oh, they want some good um, stuff. Look, look, <laughs> look at what we're drinking. Look at this stuff. <laughs> we're going to have the good stuff. Exactly. And, and exactly. fair enough, too. Well, we've got about nine minutes left, so maybe what we should do is um, um, get some of this in a glass because, um, well, let's face it, after the events that we've uh, witnessed overseas, I think we kind of need a drink. I know I do. Absolutely. Um, and, Diego, you're looking forward to a little a little yeah, sip yeah, of something? Deciding which one to have. So what, Diego? Have you got a favourite? What's your sort of favourite uh, type like of Pisco? I like most of the Italia. Italia is the grape variety, and I, I like the most of the, the so, fermentation. So, so the aromatics rather than the non-aromatics? Yeah, for, for straight Pisco, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and this is when we were looking through these. Obviously, these were the ones that leapt out of the glass for us so too. Yeah, and we what tried sort of the Italia. Yes, but um, what Diego's talking about is, is the other style of making Italia, which with a Mostoverde style, where the fermentation's interrupted a little bit earlier, so the sugar content's higher, mm. so that gives it even sweeter, 
more aromatic um, flavour to that particular style of Pisco. That sounds like a good way to think to be drinking if we're going to be drinking it neat. Um, the ways to enjoy Pisco if we do have a bottle of some good stuff in front of us? Oh, look, there's a million ways you can enjoy Pisco. Start with a, with a Pisco sour. That's yum. Yep. So try a Pisco sour. That's lovely. But yes. there's, it's such a versatile spirit. Mm. Um, we were just talking before the, we came on to air, Diego and I, about Chilcano, which is very, very popular in um, Peru. So that's made with a ginger beer or a ginger ale, Ooh. and you can mix different fruits oh, into it. Oh, that sounds nice. Like for summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. It's really beautiful. So you can actually... Um, so another a nice lighter. long drink. Yeah. That, yeah. It's beautiful. Um, you can drink Pisco with tonic. So anything that you use a gin or vodka for, you can substitute for Pisco. Mm. I sometimes, when I'm being well-behaved and low-carby, drink Pisco <laughs> and soda water um, with a little bit of lime and or uh, lemon. The well-behaved, low-carby <laughs> stage that of life. That doesn't happen very often. I think I've done that once. Yeah, okay, so it was a very small window, but, yeah, it was like virtuous. <laughs> All right. Day. For a day. Um, but there's a lot of my brand ambassador, Daniel Monk's, making a lot of um, versatile cocktails uh, that, that you can buy in some of the bars around town, things like uh, Pisco Lavender Syrup. So just with lavender, um, elderflower liqueur, lemon juice. Because yeah, I was wondering, I was thinking about when I had that lavender Soda, drink yeah. that you made, whether... Um, you'd tried the Saint-Germain with Pisco because I thought yes. that would be a very, very – that would work very well, depending on the type of Pisco you have because that's the great thing that you see. Even though you can have all these bottles of clear liquid in front of you, the um, uh, it's a kaleidoscope of flavours, is, is it not, and aromas? Absolutely. So the, the grape varieties – bring different layers to the product. The style of Pisco, so whether it's a puro, whether yeah, it's a, um, an ocholado, which means a blend of two or more grapes, or mm. whether it is a mosteverde. And a mosteverde can be either from a puro, so one variety, or an ocholado. And what I've just poured for us right now is the Pisco Porton Mosteverde Quebranta. So that is a single variety um Pisco, mm. but it's made in the Mosta Verde style, so the one that takes 8, 10, 11 um, kilos of grapes to make one litre. Yeah, so Diego this is the was, king of was, Pisco. was saying that. And if we want to learn about the uh, the intricacies of that, your, your website um, tells us a little bit of that, does it not? Absolutely. On the website we talk about the um, bodegas, mm. so the, the four bodegas that we're currently working with. We talk about different styles of grapes mm. and we give the tasting notes as well. And what uh, the, that website is, of course? www.thepiscopeople.com.au mm. do, do the goog, um, get that all happening yeah, and, um, yeah. and away you go. Yeah. Is it expensive? Look, it, 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 it is expensive. It's at the premium end of spirits, so it's comparable to the premium end of um, gins and vodkas. So you might pay $85 for a 750ml um, bottle, mm-hmm. which is... Alcohol-wise, what is that? What it's is it? very good. It's above 40 Very isn't good it? value. Big bang for your buck. It's <laughs> between 38 to 48%. So you've, you've actually be. gone into that whole thing where the tariffs are murder, aren't they? Because... Every percentage point Se- means yeah. uh, uh, mucho dinero, huh? Si, si. Uh, yeah. But it's a level playing field. It's actually so something I said in Spanish that sounded right. <laughs> yeah, maybe the first thing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yes, sorry, go on. But um, so, it, w- but what we are looking at is a premium spirit. I see this as just a glorious thing to sip. It is. Because I love sipping on spirit. Yeah. I always have. The Mostoverdes in particular are a beautiful sipping spirit. Mm. And some of the beautiful Ocholados, the blends as well. Um, you can sip the other varieties, but generally mm. um, the Quebrantas are generally used as part of a mixed drink or a cocktail base. Um and also the the some of the varieties which we don't yet have, but we're getting in the aromatic varieties, the Italia. Tontella is another really nice one. Um, so there's several of those that, that make a very nice sipping drink as well, before a meal, after a meal, at breakfast, in your coffee. <laughs> 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 it's great. Every time's a good time. Great with Vegemite toast. <laughs> <laughs>
Skip the toast and just have the pisco. God, the, the hell with uh, Madame Clicquot who says, I have it this sometimes this way. It's a, it's like that. It's like the um, the Peruvian version of Madame Clicquot, isn't it? It is, indeed. So a- any time um, can be pisco time, <laughs> of course, res- in res- you know responsibly and all that sort of stuff. Diego, what do you think about these uh, these these piscos that are in front of you? They are they are all particular or different. They are different aromatics. That's why uh, I was telling so fascinating, huh? Yeah, they are they are they're all different. There's a, a, it's, so what we do at, at the restaurant, we actually try, try to describe the aromatics of each ones to add some different aromatics that work together on uh, chilcano. So chilcano can be a, a, a Different world, you know, coming off Pisco. Uh. And, and dare I say that this, you know, we've got all these, these bottles in front of us and, and what a great reflection on the country because if there's anything that I've got from in my brief sort of looking towards Peru is just this incredible diversity. I'm a god. I mean, you know, I can't even think about how many varieties of potatoes that, that yeah, you know, my god, you know, and... There is just this incredible diversity in this country, and uh, and if you want to have a look at it, to just scratch away at the surface, maybe the first place could be to go to the Pisco people to uh, to see about that, to see just the diversity that's available in in the spirit, um, and yeah, it, it it is an extraordinary place. It is indeed, and a lot of the bars and, of course, the Peruvian restaurants around town are, are picking up on the Pisco people brands just to offer people some variety. Shall we maybe mention some of those uh, favourite places that are around? I suppose we obviously should because we've got you in here and you're going to be there. Uh, Lady Carolina uh, in Ligon Street. Pastuzzo uh, down there off uh, Flinders Lane doing beautiful stuff. They do a good pisco sour there. Yes, they do. They do. Miguel does some nice work down there. Where were we having a look at... um, Harley House Picantaria. The Picantaria. Mm, At Harley House. What is the name of the chef there? Daniel Saken. He was wonderful. He was what beautiful, a, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. he's great. Um, I hope he gets chaos? to meet Diego. Did he, uh, I will. I will. Yeah, yeah, you need sure. to, what yeah. a lovely, lovely guy. We're out of time. Um, maybe we've given you a little bit of uh, a feel for, for this place. You can get a feel for it yourself if you put your hand in your back pocket and come up with the goods and, and go up to Lady Carolina in Ligon Street or the night noodle market that's happening at Birong Ma. Um, Diego, it's, uh, it's amazing to, to meet you. Thank you so much for coming in. Josie, thank you for bringing in uh, what my mum would call good hooch. <laughs> Mighty good hooch. One o'clock Come is the time. Yeah, I want to. Uh, one o'clock is the time. Downloads on. Maddie? I guess we'll see you next week. I hope so. Indeed. See you You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.